Welcome to Pathfinder Academy. Class is now in session. Here are your professors, Caleb and Christian. Good morning, class. You may be seated. Today's lesson is Pathfinder 301, Miniatures and Dice. This is part of our 300 series covering advanced topics. And today, Christian, we have two adjunct professors. And oh, do we? their names are Chris and Chris. So we have three Chris's on this episode. Ooh, the trifecta. Perfect. We, uh, we used to be in a rap band in the early 80s, Crisscross. I don't know if you guys remember. <laughs> <laughs> I still wear my pants backwards now. It's just it's more comfortable that way. <laughs> I played with you guys a while back. I was looking for a Pathfinder game in my area in Jersey, and I found something. I think on Paisa's website, uh, you guys had put a little ad out for me. I was like, rock it. And, we, and, and somehow they, they figured out a way to deal with me, Christian. Oh, that's good, because apparently people are having trouble with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, we've we've heard we have we've heard the scuttlebutt about that. <laughs> but uh, when I when I joined with you guys, one of the first things I noticed I I couldn't happen I couldn't help but notice was just cases and cases of miniatures, big ones, small ones, some as big as your head, Cthulhu, uh, the Terminator. You had everything in there. Yeah, you know what we have is because uh, uh, Caleb was very nice not to make fun of us, but we are a little bit older and uh, we're up in around the forty range, so. Um, obviously, we have a lifetime collection of, of all the things we've accumulated uh, over play with Dungeons and Dragons and Warhammer 40,000 or what have you, probably since the late 80s, right? So we took a garage and we converted the garage, three-car garage, and we sheetrocked it, painted it. Uh, and as Caleb said, we got life-size, uh, you know, a Terminator, Stormtrooper, uh, an alien, sorry, a Xenomorph, as you, as you will. <laughs> and um, Gosh, and you're such a noob. <laughs> and, a, and a bunch of cases and those cases are primarily filled with um pathfinder battles miniatures um and probably have i'd have to say 95 percent of everything they've published and not that we would use all of that but it's extremely colorful and i think it, it definitely absorbs you into the game and i know when you and chris and doug or whoever jump in there uh, you're always going through the cabinets looking for something interesting and right, uh, right. and it, it, yeah it's it's definitely a fun thing and it's not everybody can have that or, or have the ability to have it but it, it's great to have so definitely well he's uh he's a good example of a miniatures hoarder so. <laughs> yeah that's that's true yeah it's, yeah i'll be on a show of some kind <laughs> yeah but to say we're gonna have a show hoarders now chris do you really need these listen i mean my, my, my wife doesn't need food i mean as long as they have this we already ate the cat I, it doesn't matter <laughs> yeah I try, I try my best to keep my wife out of the room but when i'm not there she'll bring all her friends in there they do a little tour it's like a little school trip they'll embarrass <laughs> it's always wonderful yeah <laughs> they, and they just look at you and go she should she could have done better she could oh yeah they better. don't understand there's no understanding yeah <laughs> I, call, I call it the freak show i said keep the freak show private would you <laughs> now you guys said that they're a fun part of the game and i agree i've used miniatures before and looking for the correct ones always fun but do you guys feel it's an important part of the game yeah, we, we, Chris and I, we, we talked about this a few times. We've talked about how, you know, basically when you play D&D or Pathfinder or what have you, you got two options, right? You got the theater of the mind. I've heard Caleb say that before, theater of the mind, where it's a piece of paper and some pencils in your imagination, where you have more something that's a little closer to a miniatures board game, right? And when you start including the miniatures, you obviously have a game mat and, you know, specifically where people are, areas of effect, these kind of things. I think in the past, when we were teenagers, we probably were more theater of the mind, which is odd. You'd think it'd be the other way around. And as we've gotten older, we've gotten a little more addicted to the miniatures. And I think <laughs> what, we've, what we've found is that it lets you to some degree be a little lazier, right? We know exactly where everything is. Well, we, it's good for avoiding arguments. Yeah. I mean, if you know your guy can only move 40 feet, well, this is how far he can move. Right, right, right definitely. Around. 
instead of it being the old way when it was, I mean, going back to like first edition where they just had all 48 inches written down for your movement. But when you were describing the situation or the encounter, you really couldn't visualize where things are at spatially right. uh, based upon uh, description. Right. Right. And the miniatures help help do that. Right. And, it, you know, especially if you have a giant, say, uh, you know, Christian or Caleb or whoever's playing a giant, obviously he's going to take up a lot more space and maybe he can't go through that doorway or he can't get through the portcullis or what have you. Well, now we know. Now we know he can't. So right. um, I think I think in that capacity it is important. I don't think it's necessary, but I think it, it can make your game a lot richer if you're willing to kind of buy into it a little bit. Have you guys also used um, map things like um, buildings and such? Uh, we, yeah, we were talking to Cable a little earlier about that. We, we primarily use those things for, uh, like, war games. We play Warhammer 40K or, or those kind of games. We, you're tied a little more to scenery and forest. and So we haven't used too much of that. We've used a little bit. Like, when you're talking, like, if you go into a graveyard, do we actually have, like, tombstones and crypts and such? I'd say typically not. We're kind of... We'll just draw to, it. Yeah, we would just draw it out. A square here, a square there, tombstone here. I think that's a little more high end for us, and if we actually bought something, you could probably use it for one tiles, encounter. Like there's uh, what they call them dungeon tiles. Yeah, the dungeon tiles. Yeah, I know uh, wizards had those for a while. Yeah. That was a big thing. Um, but I think that's the only problem is that's an investment for something you wouldn't use too often because if it's specific to that encounter, you feel like, well, I spent this money and I only use it for a single encounter, which is okay. But you know, the repeat value is is kind of low. I think maybe. Oh yeah. man, guys, another graveyard? Come on. <laughs> right, 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 right. No, no, it's not a graveyard this time. It's a whatever, right? right. Listen, I bought it tokens. You're going to like it. You're going to enjoy right. five graveyard dungeons, okay? Plus, it's just easier if you have like a dry erase board or something. You just draw it out. Uh, and then you can just change it whenever you need to. Right, right. Because the, the dungeon tiles were cool uh, if you ever had a chance to go to Gen Con. But like Chris had said, you know, you, you they could be as massive or as small as you wanted. But it is going to be very repetitive. You know, like, oh, we're in another section of dungeon again. Woo! Right, right. The well, only other thing that I think are good for the, the miniatures, again, going back to that, was it eliminates the dragon in the basement uh, trope, which is basically you go into a module and it tells you the encounter might be, okay, well, this is an encounter of 15 level, you know, and then you're just arbitrarily putting a monster that doesn't make any sense in the space that you put it in. If it was theater of the mind, you could get away with that. Oh, you you go around the corner and there is a, an ancient dragon in this right. basement. Which, if you actually have a grid out and see that dragon is not going to fit, how did it get through the doorway? Was it just born as a baby in the dragon? Is it, it, it's so funny you mentioned that. A running gag with Trailblazers, our actual play podcast on this network, is. Mm-hmm. Can a dragon fit in this room? Because we maybe had an hour-long discussion, and I condensed it down to like 15 minutes in the episode, but like off ca- off, off camera, as it were. It was just an hour-long discussion of whether or not a dragon can fit in this room, and I'm like, yes, a dragon can fit in the room. Again, we didn't have a mat. It was all up here, so... Right, and there's other things you got to think about with that, right? The dragon's got wings, right? Does that... Mm. If, if it's... If it's confined to a small space, its its muscles are going to atrophy. It's not going to be able to use its wing attacks, its right. tail attacks. It might not be able to do most of it. It's just a, a, a slug right. that breathes fire sitting in a room. <laughs> and I you could actually make a very unique encounter like that. You could make right. that a part of something. Like you find a real old dragon instead of being the most powerful it, creature in the world. It's so old that it's like 
like dust comes out when it tries to right, breathe right. fire. <laughs> it has like a guy there with a Zippo lighter trying to just right, right, fire right. And you're <laughs> right. But the or it's eating fire salamanders or fire beetles. Right, or right, right. But like, it, how does it eat? Right? How does it can't it can't escape the room? So mm. is there a cult of dragon cultists that bring it sacrifices? Right, definitely. Those are all things that you know. If it's just theater of the mind, it, it you don't really care, I guess, so much. Right. Um, when we played together uh we're all all of us here all four of us have been gms and we're all like content creators and like to make content uh chris you had designed a miniatures game uh universal war yeah we we, we, we actually the original version we actually made and brought the gen con way back in 2007 mm. and that was more of a vanity project it had no hope of any kind of success it right, was just right. something we we found interesting right like everybody has some kind of weird little vanity project in that um, in that game that we played, you had these squares, right? These three D, right. I should call them cubes, and you know, um, and that can be helpful because it's generic, of course. But right. you're merging the theater of the mind and the the miniature mentality. If we actually have a structure here, but each time I can tell you a different thing. Like today, it represents a chapel. Next time, it represents a guard tower. Right, right. Most hmm, three quarters of my GMing career have been tabletop. You know, that whiteboard grid that you can uh, use white uh, dry erase markers on. Uh, and I've forced to do that more theater of the mind stuff with Trailblazers because I had to make an audio podcast. And I know I could use things like Roll20, but I just thought that then maybe the listeners would have lost something in the translation. They wouldn't have gotten all of the content. And I really wanted them to get everything they could out of it. So I did everything theater of the mind. And surely times do come up when there's a problem or two. I think we maybe talked a little about that on In Real Life versus online play but i i truly really really love being able to draw things out on the map and use tokens now we talk about miniatures a lot but i've used most in the past where these little cardboard tokens which are like little circles with a little picture on it but the picture was irrelevant to me they had a number on it and that was really helpful because i could have monster one monster two monster three and that would help me keep track of them and that was again merging the mind thing this is a dragon or whatever i have it as uh but it's just a cardboard token and that was something i got from the starter edition of um D&D 4th edition. I got the starter box and out came all these little tokens and we just used them for the rest of our Pathfinder career because I had them. And because most people don't like 4th edition, so. (laughs) (laughs) It was interesting. Uh, It certainly was, it was, I'll say this at least, it was a good foray as my first ever experience with role-playing games. Okay. It was simple. I think we can all agree Pathfinder has a lot of things that you've got to keep track of. There's a lot of rules. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you got to remember, we we played 2nd, 3rd edition. We took a long hiatus we come back, Pathfinder's the king of the mountain, right? And yeah, they're like 3.5 edition on speed. Yeah, and, and they got all, <laughs> the, all these hardcover rule books, and there is a lot to digest. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we were struggling. And, you know, when you played with us, we're very experienced role players, but not very experienced Pathfinder players, right? right? So you being a subject matter expert was a big help for us. And um now we're not necessarily tied to the rules because we can be more fluid because everybody in the room's a little bit more open with that mm-hmm. um but uh it's a challenge coming to pathfinder we'll say right, that right but in that starter edition i got a pre-made map so, you know for the start edition it brought you through like a certain module that ended it was it wasn't very long i think it took us like two or three sessions max to get through it 
And that map, I ended up reusing it a year later at the very end of my campaign. It was the kind of the callback of you go to the first dungeon you had ever been to, but this time things have changed and there's big monsters there and all that, but you were able to reface the villain that you faced there. And that was a that was an interesting trip na- down nostalgia way for my players to to reuse that map. But I remember reading in the in the rule book that came with the starter edition, it said things like, you can cut this up and rearrange them to make a different dungeon. And I was more towards Rowan's idea. I'm like, I'm not super interested in reusing these tile pieces. I'll just draw something new. But I was able to reuse it to do that nostalgia a year later back into the starter dungeon. Now becomes the final dungeon. Right. Which which is nice. I, I remember when we played in high school, we had a villain. We were in a small village. And you faced that first villain at an evil temple right at the center of the city, pretending to be a benevolent religion turning out to be evil down in the depths of this temple. And they killed them, first level, second level. Same thing, we come back around 10th level, and they find out this guy's a major cult leader for Osmodius, right? So it's always nice to revisit a dungeon. It's good use of a dungeon if it has nostalgic value. Mm-hmm. Um, but even then, we only could use it twice. Right, right. right. At most, right, at most. So. And I think when, uh, the, the, when you're revisiting a, a, a thing that has characters, maybe like your, your that nemesis that was able to get away, it's uh, a, a good... Uh, thing with the miniatures and with the tokens too if you use the same token for that same mm-hmm. guy you know you don't even have to because you know because let's face it a lot of us like to pretend we're drama majors but we're, we're not <laughs> right. you know so you might maybe you have two or three actual voices that you can do and it gets kind of repetitive if like you know you always do the batman voice for all it's the bad true. guys it's true like, i'm going to kill you, you i know? don't want to admit it but it's true <laughs> right you know what i mean but so hey who made an npc it sounds like batman i don't <laughs> right. know anyway. <laughs> but if you have a, but if you have a token, uh, like let's say you know it's a hobgoblin face, and and you're and you tell them it's not a hobgoblin. This is actually you know archangel, blah blah blah, whatever, uh, Asimus Maximus, whatever you want to call right, him. Right. You know, all you have to kind of do is just move that token into that scene. They go, oh great, this guy again, right, he's back. Right. I thought we killed him. He's like, no, nah, this is who you see. Right. And. Uh, when the earlier days of playing with Chris, he would actually go into Dragon Magazine and cut out pictures of like real celebrities sometimes. Like he would go into a sci fi magazine. So it might be Johnny Depp, right? He would be, so all he would do is have his DM screen set up and he'd just kind of poke Johnny Depp's face around the edge of the screen and you knew who the bad guy was. Oh, like, oh, this guy, <laughs> like, didn't we kill him? Right. So that it, the visual aid part of it, reusing it, is, uh, is definitely a good thing if you're consistent with what that, that token represents. Before we go too much farther down the token path, I, I got one last thing I want to ask about um, maps. And uh, Christian, you do a lot of pre-made modules. Do they come with maps or suggestions when they when you go into dungeons? The um, one I have experience running, the big one, was Rise of the Ruling Lords. And in the book itself, you know, it has places they're likely to go, or some places kind of have to go, they want to progress the story, in which case, in the book, they actually have the map. So you'll have to copy that down onto a grid yourself. Oh, okay, they so it's like a smaller sell, version? Mm-hmm. Just they for reference? They do sell supplements, though, and I got both of them. The one was the map folio, and the other one was... Uh, an entire cardboard little book cutout thing of tokens like kind of like the ones you mentioned except they are pieces of cardboard with actual piezo artist drawings of the characters on the tokens and then you put them into little plastic inserts so they stand up Mm -hmm. uh the little plastic insert things are the little cardboard stand-up tokens they're amazing the art's really good we can reuse them for a lot of things and it really like that uh what you were mentioning with you know, they see the same person again. 
every single NPC, every single enemy had their own little token. There was almost no generic, like, this is actually a goblin and you put down, like, a rat token. Right, right. That never <laughs> happened. So that really helped flesh everything out. The map folio, not so much. Uh, it was simply way too small to use as a battle mat. The squares were, okay. like, a quarter of an inch big. Did you ever, like, redesign them? Like, I don't like what they did here and add an extra thing or remove something? <sighs> All the time. <laughs> Absolutely all the time. That's And I use a dry erase mat like you had mentioned. So a lot of times I would either just, you know, remove rooms, add rooms, so on and so forth, whatever was needed. It, it would be too boring. Everyone's brains would come out of their ears if I try to describe all little tips and tricks for how to, when you draw a map, really give it life and, and make it look really well instead of just a couple, you know, straight lines. I'll link something that really influenced me when I was trying to design maps. And I saw a difference from my players when before the way I would just normally draw things to after taking it took way longer. It took like something that would take me maybe 10 to 15 minutes now took 45 minutes. But I saw a difference. My players really enjoyed it. So I, I suggest you guys take a look at the description and uh, and look at that. It, it, it's really some good advice. And you can go as far as you want to go. If you're if you're a person that really likes cartography, you can really get into making your own maps. And you wouldn't even want to use a pre-made because that's it's your thing. Let's talk about those tokens. You talked about those pawns that you have stand up in the little plastic cases. Uh, Chris, I believe you have a bunch of those. Yeah, we, we got, um, uh, Christian was right on the money. Like, if you look at Paizo for Pathfinder, they got a couple different things for miniatures right the first one is they have paper minis which are the cheapest right, right. paper minis you just buy as a pdf you print them out and you kind of you cut them out and you stand them up right cheap and, and proud yeah cheap and proud they're like four to five dollars to buy a packet of like 50 to 150 variations and then the next step up is what christian brought up which is the pathfinder pawns they call them the pawn collections and there's about 20 different pawn collections um, and some of those pawn collections mimic um, the beast, the beast, the bestiaries, right? And some mimic the adventure paths. Like Christian brought up the uh, Rise of the Rune Lords, right? So he had the pawn collection for Rise of the Rune Lords, which is really cool, right? Because every major NPC is in there, every major monster he needs to run is in there. Um, instead of having to find something that looks like it, because like even you, Caleb, how many times in our game when we played together, we're like, okay, we got this guy, let's find somebody who looks like him. Right, yes. Right, Christian didn't need to do that because he had that book specifically designed for Rise of the Rune Lords. But does that, does that hinder your ability to make a more unique version of the Rise of the Rune Lords if you're stuck using only what they provided? You know what I mean? Like, what if I wanted to make my own unique NPCs that are tied into a larger, maybe non-Galarian campaign? Um, I would still have to go hunt and hide, you know. Right, right. Still had to do the Easter egg hunt and for, for and that's guys look like. And, and that's then it would be it would be yeah. obvious to the players because they're like, oh, well, this doesn't have a token. Right. You must have made this. Yeah, up. Right. What's what's this junkie stick man? He's obviously not. <laughs> you know, plus like you know, what if what if you you know you want to play your version of Rise of the Rune Lords? Not not a homebrew purely, but maybe change. Maybe you already had a Galarian campaign going on. Customize it. That's a, right. More customized. That's a little bit different than what the adventure paths on its own was. And and, and that's that's a big know. big challenge for for GMs because I know Caleb and Christian have talked about that before, right? Pre-made versus homebrewed, right? Mm -hmm. And and it, that's the thing is Rise of the Rune Lords is like getting pretty famous, right? It's a pretty known adventure path, but but it is a challenge to run it, right? Because uh, always always I said like say say Christians in book number one of Rise of the Rune Lords, and um, he kills some NPC. He gets into book four and he finds out, oh shit, you can't kill that NPC because he's key to the whole plot, <laughs> right? But I didn't realize that at the time. So that, that's that can sometimes be a tough thing to get around, but. Um, 
you got you got to be flexible and stay on your toes, I guess. You know. But uh, Caleb, you're more of a homebrew guy, right? I think yep, you prefer homebrew, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, I think I prefer homebrew just because people think it takes more work, but actually, I think you can be lazier. Because, uh, <laughs> right, because think about it, you don't have to read anything, you don't have to prep, everything's from you, so you, right. you're never messing your own thing up, right? And I think that people like us who really want to create our own stories, we will get so involved that we'll create things that if somebody wanted to run it, they'd have to read it, like they have to read Rise of the Rune Lords. Right, and, and, and you know what's great is like we were playing a game in like kind of a pocket dimension, and like Caleb, for example, you had a character who was a merman, right? Mm-hmm. And the thing was, which was great, is as soon as you introduced him, as with some of the other PCs, is now we could create the backstory with that character and help design where we were playing, right? So we right. say, well, hey, let's design some features that are attached to his background, where maybe with Rise of the Rune Lords, it might be a little tougher to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I really like that aspect of being able to flesh out the PCs by developing your own world. It's, it's, it sometimes can be can be interesting to do that. So. I think sometimes, no matter what you're using, a token, a paper, when you just do something different, it can be significant. It can be in positive instead of a negative. I always use the little circle tokens, and there's bigger ones for when you want to have dragons and other bigger creatures. But when I did my uh, my final, final boss, it was um, Bahamut, who's actually Baphomet, but I pronounced it Bahamut. I think we had a discussion when I played yeah, yeah, that's how wrong I was. Totally different uh, guy. <laughs> completely. One's a dragon kind of dude, right? Um, anyway, I had the, the Minotaur guy, Baphomet. Um, with a PH, uh, and I cut out a picture of him. I printed it out and, and cut it out, and I put him on the board. And so pl- my players were like, "Oh, that's different. That is significant." And I and I could you know resize him to make him exactly as the size he was supposed to be on the board. But it was like he was not a token. Oh, this is a boss. It it, it stood out, even though it was less quality. It was a printed piece of paper. It still ended up being more significant because it was something different and special from all the rest. Oh, oh yeah, like we um like you guys were dealing with um. I, I think it was some mind flayers, right? And we said mind flayers were specifically from Dungeons and Dragons, Wizards of the Coast, which right. don't aren't in Pathfinder because they're it's open game. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're they're IP, right? They're <laughs> yeah, IP, they're like, and right. So I actually bought some um, Cthulhu-esque legions from um, HeroClix, I think it was, or HorrorClix. Took them and I painted them and we plugged them into the game. You guys could see they weren't created for Pathfinder, but you knew they had a special, some kind of special fit for right. the game. Definitely. Yeah. I don't think we ever we ever tried to tango with one of them. <laughs> no, no, yeah, yeah, which was a good move. Which was a good move. We have, um, uh, we played, and you have dragon miniatures, and I don't care what has happened, how many good games I've had. There's just nothing as intimidating as having a miniature of a intricate made dragon compared to a, just a bigger token. You know what I mean? It really right. meant something when there was a dragon. I did a one shot with you guys, and there was a. We I got to use a dragon token, and it just felt. To me, as a GM, running it a little bit cooler than when I just use bigger tokens. Oh yeah, it, it, when you used the dragon, it definitely put a instilled a sense of panic, right? Because we saw how big it was, and no matter how many times you've played with a dragon, you're still gonna panic. It's way too big. We can't handle that. What are we gonna do? Yeah, you don't really you don't really get a good grasp of the scale in, right. like, next to your little miniature. Yep, yep. To, you know. I think Christian, we've spoken before how it's always really cool when you can try to make your players feel a little bit like how their characters are supposed to. Feel you can a little more identify oh no it's a dragon and before it's like yeah it's a it's a it's a dragon right oh whatever guys it's a blue dragon you know it's weak against you know uh, (laughs) right 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 you see you see stats instead of seeing you know a creature right and i think that that's the the why the the miniatures has at least a a few extra brownie points over the theater of the mind purely 
because if you were just describing the the dragon, you know, its its tail, its its wingspan, you know, the the sheen of the sapphire scales, you know, right. whatever you want it to do, you know, the smell of ozone in the air because you know it uses lightning as its breath weapon. Right. Um, oh, that's such a good description. You know, I, I mean, like that. That does it. It's not the same as here's a, like a an eight inch model <laughs> right, right. On the, in front of your bunch of your miniatures. You know. Definitely, I think. I think it's a talent that most role players have being able to use their imagination. And I think it also attracts a lot of people that have would like to play with miniature games or maybe when they were younger played with figurines. And the merging of the two of that theater of the mind and the actual, you know, hardware really makes an awesome supplemental to the game. Now, I have bought this thing once. It was a terrible, terrible thing. And I'm it's a good concept, but they need to make it better. It was a little clear plastic thing that rose up maybe an inch so that you could represent things that were flying. You could put things underneath it. But the thing I had was terrible. It fall over. It was really, have you ever seen something that actually had worked? Don't you have miniatures? Like do they pre-made? How do they show things that are flying? Yeah. The, the ones that Paizo makes, uh, usually uh, the clear plastic stick or staff, it'll actually insert into the miniature. So it won't fall. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. But anything you have to balance is always kind of a loser, right? It's always mm -hmm. going to not, not play out well. Cause it might come out a little bit warped and then it can never stand up straight. Right. Uh, no matter what so actually caleb the one you got was specifically for creatures that fly and have the clumsy flying sploops oh i see oh i missed that perfect, perfect. <laughs> flight maneuverability e or whatever <laughs> but uh yeah sometimes miniatures can be used for telling information too like say i put uh we had a blue dragon like like christian had mentioned and people know i'm very careful with the color of my miniatures right so later you might encounter a small elven woman who's uh got blue eyes and a blue dress or blue hair what have you like well that's a coincidence that she has the same color I'm like oh is it okay and uh, you know that in fact is your breath, <laughs> sure right? it is dummy <laughs> right right which could which could be used we talk about sometimes to scale like now you're in a tavern or a castle or a keep mm -hmm. but you still want a dragon to be involved in some capacity right so they've obviously you know so and her her perfume smells like death. So right. that was that was your clue, right? right. <laughs> well, then it's all red herring. She's actually the main hero heroine, and right. and you right. just discriminated. And you I just showed you're a racist. You need to, you need to look you inside yourself a little bit. And you need to fix that. That's correct. That's correct. Um, soul died a little bit inside just because of that. And uh, and you know also miniatures have very like can have that like uh, that stormtrooper Darth Vader feel, right? Like sometimes you come into the temple. And if you have five, six, seven uh, miniatures, they're the same miniatures, but it gives you that sense right. of, of, of what's happening and a, and a little bit of awe and a little bit of majesty as you enter that temple. And um, it, could be, it, could be, it could be a lot of fun. You know, not everybody has six, seven, eight, ten skeletons. Like you said, it might be S1, S2, S3, right, S4, right? right? Um, but if you have them, it's a nice thing to have. You're a little spoiled if you have them, but it's great It's great if you do. Hey, we uh not knocking the, the tokens because, uh, I mean, this is going back 100 years when we first started playing D&D, &D, but we used coins even, like, yeah. like oh, pennies, yeah, nickels, pennies, quarters. Quarters. <laughs> you know, so you know, like, oh, well, there's 15 skeletons right. in this room. Well, there's 15 pennies on the board. When you have miniatures, there's one question you never have to answer. Right, what's this guy again? Yeah, you right. see him. These are the five skeletons, and this is the one guy that's different. That's obviously the necromancer. When I've done it, they've like now is, is number one the skeleton, the necromancer again. Oh, that, that's right. that, that's the necromancer. Okay, well then that's who I'm going to target. Like you don't have to answer that question. It absolutely kills immersion. I think like staying in role playing mode while in combat is something that is difficult when you're melding um, miniature mindset and theater of the mind. Mm -hmm. 
And that's always the hardest time to, I think, and sometimes at least, to keep that immersion. So you don't want anything else working against you there. Right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, just think of the tactics, how the tactics are different. When there's no visual aid there at all, uh, you know, how do you say like, well, the guy that, the one that's got the battle axe, that's who I'm going to attack this round. You know what I mean? Well, where is he? Uh, Well, he's over here in the corner. Well, where's the corner? You know, how far is the corner from me? Yeah. You know, all right, well, he's over by the window. Okay, which window? You know, it's, well, now if you have an actual miniature, you know, okay, well, this is my movement. I'm not going to make it to the window to attack the guy with the battle axe. Let me go to this one instead. Maybe he's got, who has the, you know, he doesn't have a weapon at all. And he's actually limping. (laughs) There are times when I've, I thought my players stupid and then just realized they didn't completely understand the situation like why are you attacking the skeleton the necromancer is going to paralyze you next turn they thought they were they didn't know that they were attacking the skeleton yeah i mean how many times when you're describing that encounter do you actually go through and say the necromancer is doing some mumbo jumbo with his hands you know no you just okay what is what's the necromancer doing okay he casts sleep he threw the the dust you know where the sports puddles out like we those descriptions get kind of lost um a lot of times in the encounters and you forget you take it for granted right. like everybody knows what a sleep spell you know what material components are needed for a sleep spell but you know people forget rowan, if especially if it's a new player uh rowan you had sent me a site that you could build your own miniature and i think you actually played with a miniature you had built from that yeah site, hero right? yeah hero forge right. yeah. it's a little a little pricey but it did have a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of customi- customizable options. That's the best way to say it. Is, is that something that, like, you were able to build your own token for your own character? Did that give you a little more connection to that character now? I think so, because I, because remember, I was trying to make, like, the Paizo equivalent of the Kunari right. from Dragon Age, and which didn't exist. It didn't even exist in a role-playing game outside of the computer. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, in order to find something that was comparable to what the kunari look like what kind of equipment and just given like their size like i knew i wanted him to have a oversized weapon you know like we go because he, he took the exotic weapon proficiency so he was able to use large size weapons even though he himself was not a large creature you know like these were all things that were part of his fluff but there was no miniature that existed right. to represent that other than me i mean i do it a lot i i because i enjoy painting them but i also like cutting them up and modifying the miniatures right. to, to get what I, if I needed to be something. But, and, and you know, it was really cool when Chris had that miniature made, like, you know, your, your key NPC was a heavily armored warrior who was bigger than most of the people in the party with his armor. Mm-hmm. But Chris purposely had that miniature made at a scale a little bit bigger to show you that his race is a little bit bigger. So next right. to the guy with the armor, you could see proportionally he's a larger being, which maybe some people wouldn't be interested in that, but I'm interested in that, and right. I thought that was really cool. The scale is really important to me. And like you said, like when you set up, like a lot of times we play together, and I'm not a big talker, but when we set up the game, I want to say, hey, this is the ambiance. This is kind of how the air smells. This is what the lighting is like. This is what you see on the streets. Uh, this, you know, all these kind of things to get you in the mood. And part of that is what do your characters look like? What do they look like compared to each other? And what do they look like compared to the enemy? And once you get all, like you said, once you get that all straight in your head, and as Chris said earlier, there's no confusion in combat. You're really immersed. You kind of feel like you're in the battle. And uh, just it, it just really enhances that experience. So it, it is good. Really well, so uh, it's, it's easier for the DM because... I mean, if, you, if you're playing with a, a fairly large group, maybe five to six people, you know, uh, as players, and then 
how are you going to, you know, it's really hard for you to remember what everybody is, looks like, you know, like, oh, yeah, that's right. You're the dwarf. I, I forgot. You know what I mean? Yep. Or, oh yeah, you're, you're actually a seven foot tall barbarian, mm-hmm. you know? So, uh, you know, like or, or, he's going to come, the monster's going to attack you because you're the biggest target. Right, the, right. Or, or we know an, an, <laughs> another challenge we all saw was uh, Doug who played with us, played a summoner. And as a summoner, he was bringing in all these creatures, right? So without miniatures, very easy to lose track of what the hell he's doing, right? right. But, all, but all of a sudden, he had his Eidolon. Then he had summoned a snake. Then he had rat. something. Yeah, he had a rat swarm. But now with miniatures and pictures and these kind of things, we very easily could lay them out on a, uh, on a, on a grid. And not just that, but they all had different actions. So we knew exactly... What were the rats doing? What was the snake doing? What was the Eidolon doing? And what was his main character, the, sum- the summoner himself, doing? So it was a big help with, with a character type like that. Yeah. I really didn't know or remember that Rowan's character was bigger than our big bad NPC until you put that piece down. And I was like, wait, you're really that big? And you're like, yeah, I'm really that big. I told you session one. Well, I forgot, and I didn't have a miniature to remind me. Like you, We just picked a generic miniature. It wasn't one that really represented until you, you got that spe- specific yeah, plus one. It, 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 like I mean, it, Paizo's got like half giants, but he, so he I knew he he's not he wasn't as big as the half giant, but he was definitely big. Like the he hit the maximum height for medium sized creature. Right, right. You know what I mean? So, and, and you know what it is it's it's really cool. Just talking about that for a second, it's really cool. One thing about D and D and Pathfinder is we know it's like infinite worlds, infinite gateways, infinite possibilities. And when someone says, "Hey, I want to play a Smurf." you know who's half centaur and he's bisexual and whatever it is you may say that's the silliest thing i've ever heard but if you have the ability to somehow fit that into your campaign and make it interesting and make it fun um it it's a great thing right sometimes it takes a little work but chris wanted to take something from a video game but kind of mix it with D, mix it with pathfinder but not on a cheesy way we said how can we really develop this and pull it into our story and you spend a little time and you come up with something good like your merman right we said okay here's his backstory from galarian right but this is how he transitions in this demi-plane and who he's hunting in this demi-plane and what his goals are and what happened to his family and what's driving him and then ultimately what does he look like on the board and you created a miniature this is how the guy looks right right so uh I yeah, think cool. I think for that uh, Smurf Centaur thing that we, we we have to cut up a lot of different <laughs> miniatures to make that one and working out some custom paint just, jobs on that one. And I was just gonna say, from a, a medical biological standpoint of uh, <laughs> you know how that uh, sex action happened is just I don't know. Listen, don't question it. It just happened. There's like half dragons. It's like it's this magic. person slept with a dragon. Don't know how that happened, but guess what? Now we got Wervians. Okay, I'll take right. it. Okay. Kobolds and dragons. And kobolds are small. All right. Okay, I'll take it. Uh, yep. and, Smurfs and centaurs. Woo! And and, I, and I'll tell you one thing: when you play with, you don't always play with experienced players, right? But when you do, one thing is you you gain a confidence and and a and a, and a belief that those guys are going to develop a good character, right? So if Caleb says I'm going to play a merman, or a Christian says, Hey, I'm going to play this anti paladin, or Chris says I'm going to play an assassin, you might say, Well, that could hurt the campaign. They go, No, no, just trust me. I'm going to find a way to weave this into the game and create a better game. And and like you said, Caleb, sometimes you got to kind of meta a little bit, but as long as you, you can trust the people you're playing with, you can really create a rich game. Um, That's a big thing of trusting who you're playing with. Right. And the miniatures are just part of that, though, because they, they show who that person is or, or who they're not, like we said with the dragon and the elven woman, right? Mm. Speaking of that, did, did you guys see Game of Thrones last week with Melisandre? Don't watch and, it. Uh-oh. No. Uh-oh. What? Really? Oh, no. 
all. <laughs> not seen it. Not even seen five minutes of it. All right, we have to end this podcast right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I request you don't use any of this audio. <laughs> Let's talk about some other gaming paraphernalia. I think one that every GM in the world uses when you play in real life is the GM screen. And that's an important piece, not only to separate you, uh, the roles and things that your players don't need to see, monster stats uh, from the players and you, but also, Chris, you'd put pictures on the back of it. You clip pictures of this is the world, this is what the NPC looks like, and different things to communicate to the players. Right. I, I think the first thing is ever since the late 70s, they've had these DM screens, right? And even in commercials and all these things, what's so great is even if I have nothing behind this GM screen, you think I do. Right? There's, there's the belief. <laughs> you said that so like vindictively. You think right, I right. do? There's the belief there's some great mystery behind the curtain, right? And um, so, so it's a wonderful part of the game. It's a good visual separation between because uh, I mean, you might let's say you couldn't even afford the DM screen. You just got a book up, you know, rolling dice behind the book. It's just the the, the idea of. You know, the separation between the game master, the DM, uh, and the players. Right. It's kind of necessary. You had and, a computer like, behind like your screen, and I sometimes had to go back and, and adjust it, fix something, print something, and you were like, hey, you get, get, get away from my behind my screen, Caleb. Yeah. I got stuff back there. Yeah, and there would be. There would be like four, maybe two or three reveals I didn't want you to see till later in the right, game, right? right? And uh, it might be a, a major NPC, a monster, or a location, right? And uh, But like you said, on the outside of the screen, I do like to put two things in particular every time. One is a group shot of all the PCs, right? So if, you know, there's Caleb, Chris, Doug, maybe my NPC, i like you to show you the four of the NPCs together because that's effectively what outsiders see when you guys approach them. Which you so can you easily forget when you have a cat folk a tango and it's like, you're not easily. a bunch of humans. You've got to remember it's, this. Again, because you, you have to remember that group was so weird. You guys were kind of like the bounty hunters from Empire Strikes Back, right? <laughs> right, right. It's like this, this real motley collection of guys, but kind of badass dudes that are coming into town. So you're going to watch out with these guys, right? So that's that's the first image is remember who you are. And then the second image is obviously wherever you're playing. In that case, it was in that pocket dimension. Right. I wanted you to see what the city looked like. It was very dark and had all these neon purple Purples. lights. I remember a lot of and, purple and dark. Right. So I needed you guys to constantly remember where you were and who you were. And then with that combined with whatever the encounter was, I think it kept you immersed in what was happening. And the, but yeah, obviously the GM screen is important for that, yeah. It can be so helpful when you especially don't have tokens, when you do have just cardboard cutouts. That is very important to kind of remind your players this is what you are, this is the world you're in. Right. Right, right. I, I, I can't stress. And even if even if the PCs are not that interested, even if it's just for you, the storyteller, I find I have got to remain uh, clear on what is happening Absolutely. and who is doing what. And sometimes, this is odd, but sometimes the backgrounds of the PCs are more important to me than themselves, right? Because I need to know what those motivations are because, as you know, Caleb and Chris knows, a lot of NPCs I make um, are tied to your, your histories, Right. Like Caleb, there was a, I think, a were tiger mm -hmm. uh, that came after you that was hunting you based off your background, and he was very specific to you, right. and uh, it made the encounter much richer mm -hmm. because you're like, oh shit, this is that guy from that guy because I did that thing, right. and right? why you the know? how the heck did he get here? This is a lot of right. locations now, and um, yeah, yeah, just just really good, just really good stuff. My personal GM screen has been the back of my laptop recently. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a sign of the times, right? Because right. uh, you're using um, Hero Lab or, mm -hmm. or whatever you might be using to look up uh, on the computer. So it makes a lot of sense. I personally have all my notes on 
like a Google document or something like that because I find it easier to sort through it like that. So my GM screen serves two functions. <laughs> and Christian, a thing that you do, which I think all uh, all of us here can can really um, identify with, is is you play music with that laptop. Oh yeah, I think music is really important. Like if we're talking about paraphernalia, things we bring with the game, I specifically got like this little USB kind of speaker thing to plug into my laptop because I think ambient music is actually very very important. Absolutely. I talked about in, um, I think, our storytelling tips episode that part of the most important part of me coming up with a story is I listen to music and then I write my story while I'm listening to it. Like, oh, what could be happening while this song was going on and all that? Like, so when that happens in the game, I have that song going on. Or like you said, ambient music. Chris, you had the same thing. You had a, a, a Bluetooth speaker. Yeah. What, what I really liked was... Um... It got a little boring, but like the city we were in, that pocket dimension, we had um, monoliths, right? These giant monoliths that created a, a resonance, like a resonant noise. Right. And I could play that for you, and you could hear it, that buzzing. And at the same time, we could play some theme music on top of it just to kind of keep you energized. Right. But like you said, you, you've got to be careful not to be pulled out of that theme, right? If you're playing, like we said earlier, in Barovia with Stravon Zarvik, you don't, you don't want to you need to have horror music, right? Because right. it's a gothic horror story, right? Um, you don't want to have this other kind of music. Pop music. Yeah, or if you're in the hills fighting barbarians, you get a little Conan going, get a little Conan music going, right? One of the most successful scenes I've ever was able to set up was actually part of a pre-made thing. Caleb, you were part of some of it. Uh, the Harrowing, and it's like kind of a silly, almost Alice in Wonderland type adventure. But there's one NPC that they go to talk to, and it's actually um, in... Bestiary terms, it is a uh, it's a hag, a mute hag of some kind. No eyes, no tongue, doesn't speak. And they had to go talk to this person. And like I had to do sign language because they don't speak. And I had just a very very simple creepy music playing, and they all were freaked out as soon as the music started playing because it starts out invisible. And I'm like, oh, you guys feel a chill wind, and the air here is still. And then I started playing the music, and they were incredibly freaked out by that's that. That's perfect. Yep. Yeah, that's perfect. There's a, the idea of the difference between you know your imagination with a cardboard token, and then what a dragon token does is when you say you know you're in a tavern and there's and there's there's boi uh, boisterous music to playing that boisterous music, and almost like your players almost feel like a little bit of the dance. And I think right. there was a time when I, I played with you guys when I did that one shot with you guys, and we did a battle on a train, and so I had very very fast paced battle music. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah Final Fantasy. It, it was it, it was, was Final Fantasy VII uh, battle music, and, and and I gotta tell you, it was it was a lot of fun because it was like a real shift of gears. Because we like when we were playing before that in the the pocket dimension, it was very like kind of eerie and Cthulhu esque. Right. It was very nice to go into a different adventure, have the energy level pick up, right. and like you said, it, we, we, there was a sense of urgency. We're on these uh, these trains, these, these, yeah, yeah right. these basically steampunk engine locomotive things. The dragons attacking, flyers are attacking, right. guys are jumping from one train to the other. You know we're gonna create here eventually you right, gotta right. take care of business and and the music matched the theme right it kept mm -hmm. the energy level up that hey you better hurry up something's gonna happen here right, right. um so i and I, you kind of rely on the gm to figure that out and say what is the perfect music and it, it sounds like you know uh you know like with with christians you have to have a certain kind of music the one you had the one we have um yeah i think i think we all kind of agree that uh, you you really need the music in some way or the other whether it's just going to be ambient background music or it's actually going to be uh you know theme music right for that that bad guy's got that song it's his so theme, time, right? Just, right you know like michael myers has got his theme yep. music 
Jason Voorhees, the guy has demons. Like, great, you only need to play a little we, bit of it. Yeah, you know, we, who's coming? So. We, we used to, uh, <laughs> one game we used to play, there used to be a, an agent of uh, Osmodius. Nobody, he, he never said that, but everybody knew the situation. When he would show up on the prime plane to tempt you with an offer, you know, Doug, one of our PCs, would put the Hellraiser soundtrack on every time. So basically, the guy shows up, tries to broker a contract with you. Right, right, right. Music. You know not to challenge him because he will destroy you. <laughs> right. He's always looking to make a deal, right? Mm -hmm. And you knew when you heard that music, it was him, mm -hmm. right? So you put that, it was kind of like Darth Vader, right? You, you put that music to the side for that character or that scene or that backdrop. Yeah. There was a piece of music that is my favorite piece of, uh, of music, period. And, and I saved that for the end of my year-long campaign. I was constantly like, nope, Caleb, don't use it for anything else. Use it for the concluding moment when they win. I want to use that music for that. And that's what I saved it for. I can't, I can't, I literally cannot express enough how important music is to my campaign. I never have and I never will run a, a campaign that doesn't involve music. Even over Trailblazers, it's so difficult to give my players through Skype music. I don't have an easy way to play it through the Skype. So I send it to them a file, I'm like, are we going to play it right now? Three, two, one, hit play. Oh, I didn't get the file. There's all these problems, but it's, an, it's worth it to me to work through it because music is so important in my campaign. I can listen, anyone can listen to music and it makes you cry. It has an emotional effect on you and there's times when there's no better way to get a player in the emotional state that you want their characters to be in sometimes than giving them that music oh, or to you... keep them from getting bored in a battle some upbeat music because the battles that'll last four hours and you're going to get bored in four hours yeah it's, i always say could you imagine watching jaws without the music i mean or star wars without exactly. the music it just wouldn't be the same experience right mm -hmm. same thing here same thing here yeah and speaking of that i know caleb i think you said you weren't familiar with it and maybe christian is but you guys know Sirenscape? Have you guys ever run into Sirenscape? I Basic haven't heard of it, no. no. Yeah, Siren Sirenscape's basically a company that they've kind of worked side by side with Paizo a little bit for Pathfinder, and they've been licensed out to do... Uh, the way they define it is they call it... Let's see what they define it as. It's a sound design app that adds evocative ambient background sound um, to act like a soundtrack to your tabletop gaming experience. But basically, when you go to Sirenscape, They've got different noises like tavern, uh, you know, uh, haunted wood. Crickets uh, for at night kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Now, and now that's kind of like, okay, that's kind of interesting. I could probably use it. But they, they've also been recently licensed by Pathfinder to fit specific adventures. So, for example, like the one that Christian's doing with Rise of the Rune Lords, they have a whole soundtrack for Rise of the Rune Lords. So, for example, when you get, there's a point in Sandpoint, the town of Sandpoint, where goblins attack the town of mm -hmm. Sandpoint, the coast, and you play a goblin attack, and what you do is you hear in the background all these little goblins running around. That's going, cool. Yeah, burn it, burn it, you know, <laughs> and, and I get the Yumi's, the Longshanks, and they're running around. That's and the cool. And, and not only does it play it, but it, it never repeats. So every single sound moves at a different pace, and you can go and adjust how loud you want each thing, like dogs barking at 10 or women screaming down to a 2 or whatever it might be. Listen, I always like to have my women screaming down to a 2. <laughs> right, right. Or just muffled, you know, because it's easier to hide them in the basement. Much, much easier. Um, I'm sorry. Now, something like Sirenscape is costly because you have to go in and buy each package that you want, or you can pay a monthly mm. fee and have access to everything. So it's much like the miniatures, it's another cost. Are you willing to deal with? Maybe not, but if you are, it can enrich the experience. So it's kind of like owner of the grocery store. What's a fit for you? Um, but you take the one Christian's playing, you take Rise of the Rune Lords. Now you've got maps, you've got an adventure path, you've got a soundtrack, you've got specific miniatures for the NPCs. 
I mean, it's, I mean, Pathfinder's really, really raised the bar on the adventuring experience if you want to run a specific adventure. Um, you mentioned it, man. All of this, what's the one thing it all has in common? Cost. This, cost. it can be if you want it to be a, a, a cheap hobby. But if you want it to not be, it can very much not be. You can right. print out pieces of paper. You can just spend the $10 or $20 on a mat, and that's all you ever bought. All the rule books and stuff you look up online for free, and you can do it that way. Or you can buy the books, get all the awesome paraphernalia, buy the subscriptions to Hero Lab and to this Sirenscape, and buy the all the figures you want, get custom figures or everything. You can, you can spend as much money or as little money as you want. And I think it's something that makes this hobby uh, really unique. It does. It, it, it's the great irony of life, right? Like, w say you're in high school and you can play Dungeons and Dragons till four in the morning every day because you just don't care, but you have no money. You can't buy anything, right? You're broke. Then you get older, you get a few bucks, and now you have no time to play anything, right? So you, you never get the best of both worlds. Um, and that's where we're tortured, is where we have the resources now, we don't have the time to play. Uh, unfortunately, right? We could pay play for very infrequent, which is why you just you spend more time collecting stuff when you get older <laughs> yeah. rather than using it. it it's like yeah, it's it's like it. the guy who's working on the car in his garage for like twenty years but never finishes. Right, the right. Car, you know? I think we played like twice a month at best. Right, and that was playing. that was actually very difficult for us with our right. schedules. And uh, as much as we liked it, um, and we'd love to play at least once a week. We we just we just couldn't manage it. Welcome, everyone, to today's game show. Last we left off, you had control of the board. David, go ahead and pick a category. I'll take weak spots for 600, Caleb. I already told you that isn't a category. In that case, I'll take things that don't fit in castles for 400. All right, for $400, here's the answer. This massive thing won't fit into a castle. Dom. What is a dragon? That is correct. All right, we surveyed 100 people. Top five answers are on the board. We come across an obviously important character who I've spent hours preparing as a critical pivot point to the story. What do you do? Yes, David. I shoot him in the face. That is correct. And that means you have reached the million dollar question. Here we go. David, for a million dollars, this podcast is an entertaining podcast where a couple of friends get together, hang out, and play the tabletop RPG Pathfinder together. Is it A, the Trailblazers Actual Play Podcast? B, Pathfinder Academy, an informative podcast about the same game? C, the Trailblazer Network on iTunes, where you can find both of these shows and more? Or D, more information on our website at tblazer.net? I don't know, that's a tough one. I'd like to phone a friend. Alright, let's get Dom on the line. Dom, I'm stuck here, can you help me out? I sure can. The answer's A, the Trailblazers podcast. Is that your final answer? Yes, A, the Trailblazers podcast. That's correct! And everyone's a winner because everyone can listen to the Trailblazers podcast every Tuesday right here on the Trailblazer Network. Because the only thing nerdier than playing RPGs is listening to shows about people playing RPGs. Let me mention something that I think the theater of the mind has over the actual miniatures and things like that is when you're doing fog of war. When I've never really had a problem when I'm describing what they don't see because I just don't describe it. I'll say there's more to this room, but you just can't quite see far enough or, or whatever. But when you're or, or magical darkness, everything's dark. And I just say that right now. And and. When it comes to in-game, I have to like try to cover things up with cuts of piece of paper to make sure I cover up just this much, and that way I can remove just this much when they get there, but not 
reveal the whole room and it, and it becomes very difficult. And if a magical darkness is cast, you know, all bets are off. Great luck trying to represent that now. And it could become very, very difficult. Uh, I think Hero Lab, I, 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 not Hero Lab, um, Roll20, the online, uh, one of the online tools to a virtual tabletop has some sort of method for, um, real life fog of war effects what you can see and not can see i haven't used it because i don't pay for it i just use the free version there's different ways like that but i think it, it becomes very difficult when you use real uh paraphernalia i personally draw stuff as i go but that runs into its own set of problems mm-hmm. in that i'm a terrible artist and everyone gets confused when i have to start <laughs> drawing things i'm sitting there looking at my map like one two three four okay right. it goes four and right. then you just oh, wait, can't no, spend wrong. as much time <laughs> on it mess if... up the next room right. and get some water after erase it and if you want to make it intricate you just don't have the time because you have to do it right now right, right. or right. maybe you, you forgot something right yeah, yeah. oh yeah <laughs> oh, that's bad where are the stairs <laughs> right. oh but you guys did what's over there draw, 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 draw. Yeah, I, I think like like caleb you and chris guys you guys went into a, a cave a sea cave right we went into one of these mm. sea caves and i purposely didn't draw it ahead of time i wanted to but i said but you know what? i don't want to see everything right so i drew it as we went and that was a problem with that right is the quality of the drawing wasn't great right the proportion wasn't always correct mm-hmm. um but at least you didn't get anything ahead of time so it was like which is the better way to do it you kind of got to make that decision and, and kind of go with it but. see i'm i i'm with you caleb as far as the theater of the mind when it comes to fog of war stuff because right like if they can't see it you just don't tell them they can see it that's mm-hmm. that's not a big deal but when it where it starts to get a little harder is when you have spell effects like darkness 15 foot radius you know like well, how do, how do I explain that without a visual aid, right? Because you say, like, well, it's 15-foot radius. It's a 30-foot diameter. Where am I at in the room? Is right. there? Am I near the edge of the 30-foot diameter? Or right. am, I, you know, am I, like, five feet? Like, it's hard to... But, you know, you really can almost, that. in one way, make it better. If you're on a board, right, and you're, you're on the edge of that darkness, your token, you know all I have to move is take a five-foot step to the left. Right. But if you're in the darkness, you don't know that. So in the theater of mind, you could say you're in the darkness, and you don't know that it's a five-foot step to the left to get out. So yeah, I think it's true. All this yeah, stuff, yeah. there's a theme going on here. Everything's a little give and take. There's no perfect yeah. way of this. This is all whatever works for you, however you want to take a little and give a little from each part. Right, right. And it doesn't even always have to be the same. You could change it up as you go, right? A little here, a little there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. How much metagaming do you want to do? Right, yeah, exactly. I'm very interested to hear. You guys went to a convention where they had a bunch of guys playing at once. I'm very interested to hear what did they use with their tokens uh, and mats? Uh, uh, PaizoCon, uh, which is a good topic to bring up because PaizoCon actually is this month for the new PaizoCon. We went last year. I knew that and planned that. (laughs) Uh, PaizoCon was last year in May. We went. It was... uh, Chris and I and Doug went, and what's really interesting is they have organized play with Pathfinder, which we don't play, but they have uh, a, like their penultimate event for organized play in Seattle when they do this. And what that means is at a hotel, you go into the room, and I don't know, there must have been three or 400 people in yeah, there. Yeah, it was big. And you figure about tables of eight or nine people, 300, 400 people. Um, this whole room and a giant PowerPoint presentation, and they show you a compound where a fight was happening between a good organization and a bad organization. And everybody, all the players were good, part of the good organization, and they must have had 10, 15 referees 
organizing this giant battle and updating on this board what was happening. And it was crazy. I mean, it was like, wow, this is keeping track of this. It was a nightmare. But the energy was magnificent. They get on the PA system. A dragon has landed in Section 3, 5 and destroyed <laughs> these guys. Right. Or the building in the southern part of the compound is ripped apart and this has occurred. And then you and then your guy at your table, the GM at your specific table, would say, well, what do you guys want to do? Do you want to run to the hole in the earth? Do you want to run to the dragon? Do you want to continue what you're doing in the library? And um, yeah, because like each table wasn't playing the exact same uh, section of the of the larger map. Like right. these three tables might only be over by where the menagerie is, or you know, or these guys are over by where the chapel is. So your tables might actually be closer to where the dragon shows up than the other guys, but you still heard it because there was this right. huge explosion on the other side of the compound. Did know? they use printed maps and tokens? Yes. Yep. Yeah, they were pre-printed was, and yeah. miniatures. They had both. Yeah, yeah. It was it was very well organized in the sense that all the different tables. I don't know, however many tables. Say there was yeah. forty tables, fifty tables. Uh, all the GMs were given the information ahead of time. All the information they could reveal to us ahead of a time. The stuff they had to keep secret from us. And like all the major NPCs were NPCs known to Galarian, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So since those NPCs were known to Galarian. They were actually able to use the Pathfinder pawns to represent those people at every table that encountered them. I find it very interesting that they use miniatures because unless I'm wrong, which I am all the time, they don't sell miniatures. They sell those pawns, right? No, they, they sell both. They, they sell the Pathfinder. Oh, right, because oh, you were saying most of the miniatures you have in your cases are... Right, Pathfinder battles. Oh, okay, all right. Right. Now, those are here's this is the weird thing is Pathfinder battle miniatures, which are pre-painted miniatures, are made by WizKids. And the, the pre-painted miniatures that are made by Wizards of the Coast are also made by WizKids. So literally the same company is making pretty much all the pre-painted miniatures mm -hmm. for the role-playing community, more or less. We're not uh, sponsored by anybody, so we can give honest opinions. What do you think about the quality of those miniatures? I, I mean, I, 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 they're, they're okay, right? Yeah. <laughs> the lack of words says everything. Yeah, yeah I think, I mean. I, I think that the paint job on them is where they lose it. Yeah. yeah right? Like, because it, it's it's a pre-painted plastic figure. Yeah, right? and, and you got to figure they're being painted in China, right? And they're painted by. In mass, right? Yeah, in they're, mass, they're painted so. by a 50-year-old Asian woman somewhere <laughs> in China who's got to paint, you know. 300 an hour and right. you know so you know you're only gonna get a certain are they level. durable right. are they durable or easily broken yeah they're flexible yeah. they're a little bit flexible so they don't break you can drop them on the counter they're not gonna break uh so in that way they're good um yeah i give them a decent i mean i probably give them a, a c plus or yeah B some are some are definitely better uh representations of that creature than other things i yeah, like I the would... dragon ones we mentioned yeah, it before i thought like... those were pretty well done and usually, usually, like, say you buy, um, in fact, I have a note, when you buy those Pathfinder Battles miniatures, they come in, uh, what do they call them? They come in um, uh, boosters. You buy them in boosters. The boosters are put uh, fifteen ninety nine a booster, and you get uh, one large figure and three medium or small creatures, and they're randomized, right? Mm -hmm. um, but those large figures are usually pretty detailed, so you might get like a kind of an ogre chieftain or a small dragon or a demon lord right. or yes yeah something like that um the larger ones usually look, look pretty, pretty good. good yeah um and usually eat if you buy a um i forget what you call it, usually how i buy them in a whole case cases are expensive like 400 dollars for a case but if you buy a case you'll get every single miniature in in that in that collection um and usually they'll have one limited miniature in there a larger miniature that's in there comes with it a uh, great so but it's the, like buying booster packs for card games i hope i get the one i want ah <laughs> I got the special foil one. Now I can, you know, I don't <laughs> have you seen my foil Charizard? 
<laughs> yeah. It, there's no way to buy them individually if you want a specific one. You you can. Yeah, you can either two ways. Usually you can go on eBay and buy specifically that miniature and then even Paizo sometimes will break them up and you can buy them on their website for a little bit more than they're worth because you're looking for that specific model. Um, when when I played, we actually used some figures from a Lord of the Rings Monopoly game because they were metal and they, yeah. you know, they weren't very big and they're probably a little smaller than a usual token you get from Paizo. But we were like, hey, this one's a dwarf. It's a dwarf. We can use like, a dwarf character. I'll use them. And then I had a Star Wars uh, one, so I had Darth Vader with somebody. I'm like, it, it looks like a cloak. It, it's fine. It works out well. We'll merge mind and we'll merge real. Uh, a listener of ours and someone who's really started to become a, a friend, really got a lot of interaction with him. He uses Legos because how customizable Legos are, and they're just about the right size to fit on, you know, the little one inch squares. Yeah. Or they're, they're, like probably, they're probably really good for terrain wise if you wanted to make like a three dimensional dungeon. Yes, I didn't even think of that. Village or whatever, you just, just use the Lego bricks. Right. So if you certainly if that's if that's up your, your alley, then you can really yeah. create any old town. Yeah, especially like imagine like ruined temples or something. Yeah. Just break off some more bricks. <laughs> <laughs> a whole new definition of pre made. <laughs> It's like uh, you had mentioned expectations earlier. It's like if everybody's fine with that, it, it works perfectly well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't need to be the high-end guy to have a good role-playing experience. I think these these are just like extras. It's like we all like the Maserati, but we can't all afford the Maserati, right? right? So, um, you know, we're good with the Chevette or whatever we end up getting. Right, right. right. Tabletop RPGs are not pay to win. Right. right. <laughs> Thank right. goodness. We've been talking a lot about all the paraphernalia that go on here, but there's the most important paraphernalia, and that's the dice. And how much is there to talk about dice? A surprising amount. So allow me to bore you for 20 minutes. Uh, <laughs> did you know? There's like a little, you know, every, oh my gosh, do you guys remember the pop-up video on like MTV? Yep. The little yeah, pop-up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> little pop-up uh, video information here. That the true average of a dice isn't the middle number. When I say D8, you think, well, the average is four. Well, since you no. can't roll a... Z- shut up, Christian. I know you're smarter I knew, than me. I, you asked me if I knew. I know. He's <laughs> like, shut up. Be quiet. Okay, first off, I understand you know. And second off, shut up. Uh, <laughs> this is my show. Be quiet. <laughs> if you roll a D8, you can never roll a zero. So four can't be the average. It can't be the median. It's actually 4.5. It's whatever that number you think it is, 0.5. So a D2, it's 1.5. A D10, it's 5.5. D20, it's 10.5. But that's the true average. That's why when you see like an bestiary or anywhere where you take half health the creature say it had a d10 hit dice and it's third level it's not just taking 15 health it takes five and then six and then the next level five and the next level six and next level five that way you can do that 0.5 average it's one of the few times where pathfinder actually cares about the decimal usually if it's like round down and then forget about it forever but when you get health you carry over that 0.5 until your your next level scoff caleb of course you can't roll a half what are you talking about <laughs> you needed to do like the harumph when he yeah. <laughs> i want to talk about the percentage because this happens to me all the time listen i got i went to college i went to the statistics class helped me not helped me not at all don't remember anything I did about the it. statistics you know <laughs> i did all the maths and maths is the worst but i did them i did all of them um, boy, listen, for computer science, you to go to, like, Calc 2, and some guys went further into, like, linear algebra, shoot me in the head. Uh, but if you always wonder, like, I rolled, you know, nine ones in a row, what are the chances? And so I looked up so I could forever know, and lucky for me, it's easy to figure out. Mine was only six in a row. Was... <laughs> oh, yeah, Caleb was there for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah we'll talk about that in just a second. <laughs> so if you have, like, a D20, 
any you know single number like a d20 for example there's a five percent to roll any number so it's a five percent you're gonna have a critical hit a five percent chance you're just gonna critical fail everything's five percent and like for a d6 it's 16.7 percent for each number uh but the things that start getting interesting is when you roll two dice so if i'm rolling 2d6 to get a 2 or a 12, it's 2.8%. And to get a 3 or 11, it's 5.6. A 4 or 10 is 8.3. A 5 or 9 is 11.1. And a 6 or 8 is a 13.9. And then the, the, the best one, 7, is 16.7. That's why with craps, you crap out on a 7, because it's the one that's going to come up the most. I was about to say, I think I'm ready to go to the casino right now. <laughs> right. I think I understand it in depth now. <laughs> the reason I bring this up is because... When you think about uh, when you roll one dice or two dice, when I'm rolling, say, uh, my, my damage is 2d6 damage, I'll never do one damage. For minimum, I'm going to be doing two. Maximum, I'll do 12, and we're all like, wow, that's really cool. But I'm, on average, going to do seven. Meanwhile, when I'm rolling 1d6, it's the same percent chance that I'll be rolling a one or a six. You never know. There's no, But the higher chance when you have the other one is that you'll be getting seven you know, more consistently. So when you look at, like... Um, there's certain feats and things in Pathfinder that you can increase the damage die of, like, natural weapons and things like that. And it's like you go from 1d2 to 1d3 to 1d4 to 1d6 to 1d8, and then it switches over. Then you go to 2d6. So when I'm rolling, like, a 1d8 compared to the 2d6, if I'm rolling a 1d8, I got a 12.5% chance to get an 8. All right? It's also a 12.5 chance to get a 1. But if I'm rolling a 2d6, I've got a 13.9% chance to roll an 8. I already have a better average to get the highest number I can get on a 1d on a, a 1d8. Even though it's a step down dice, they're just d6s. Higher chance comp- the 12.5 compared to 13.9. And that's the second highest percentage. The highest percentage is that I'll be getting a 7, you know, the 16.7% chance. The 1d10, 10% chance I'll get that 10. If I'm rolling 2d8, then it's a 10.9% chance to get that 10. It's higher already. And uh, that's again next to the highest, which is 9 for the 2d um the, the 2d8 which is 12.5 percent chance so Caleb, my this is all confusing me i thought everything was just a 50 percent chance because it happens or it doesn't <laughs> uh yeah uh, yes you're right fine christian if that's what you well, want to leave i have a serious question caleb mm-hmm. uh well how that's all well and good if you're comparing 1d8 with 2d6 because right. the 2d6 the the overall total is is going to be higher because it can mm. get you four more points Right. But what if, how does it, how does it compare when it's the same numerical total, like 1d8 and 2d4? I can answer that because Caleb doesn't have notes on it. And I'm one of the people that should have shot themselves in the head because I went up to linear algebra and got three. I'm going to show how painfully little I actually know about math after all of that. Um, so 1d8 to 2d4. I'm actually going to bring that up, too, because Caleb already has the 2d6 here. Let's just suppose 1d12 versus 2d6. What's mm-hmm. the functional difference of the two? When you're rolling 1d12, if you're looking at a graph of all the probabilities, every single number on the d12 has the exact same chance of being rolled. They are all 8.3% chance to get each of the numbers, so that's a flat graph against all the odds. When you're rolling 2d6, because they can roll uh, the same number multiple different ways, instead of having that flat distribution and they all having the same chance, um, the numbers closer to the middle of the dice actually have a much higher chance than the ones at the edge of the dice, like Caleb was talking with the 2d6. If I can find it, where that Except goes. you can't roll a 1 with 2d6. Right. Think of yes, a hill. That's another big difference. You think of a hill, the way it would kind of go up and then go down on both sides. They call it the bell curve. That's what you're getting when you're rolling two numbers. Right. So generally, rolling two dice will be more consistent. You will more 
consistently get the average number, which will more consistently lead to a higher number. Um, but like raw number wise, you're more likely to get a 12 on a D12 versus 2D6 because you need to specifically roll two sixes. That's the deal. When you get to max okay. numbers is when it changes. So like we were talking about 1D8 to 2D6, it is a 12.5% to me to get that max 8. It is only a 2.8% for me to get that max 12. Very rarely we have that exciting moment. I got max damage. You'll get that way less when you're rolling two numbers. But like when you get to the, the even the bigger numbers, like the 1d10, the 10% chance to get a 10, the 2d8, which is the next step up when you're doing the, like the, the feats. It's a 1.6% chance to get that 16. 1.6. It's not going to be happening yeah. very often, right? But that's why whenever like you roll attack in, in Pathfinder, it's one dice. It's a d20. That way you can get the one or you can get the 20 and it's the same chance. And to make it better, you add the numerical bon the bonuses. If I want to be better at bluff, I could roll a one the same chance I could roll a 20. So I'm going to put 10 points in the bluff. That way, whatever it is, I can at least add 10 to it. That's the way kind of Pathfinder works. And but this is why no one this is why no one takes Vital Strike feet chain. Right. This is the, here's the thing that everyone's gonna ask every time you're playing. This is the one stat that you really really want to know, and that's what's my percent chance of rolling the same number twice in a row. That's the big thing. Like you roll <laughs> not ones nine times in a row. <laughs> this gets a little a little interesting. If I roll a dice, right? If I roll a d20 and I get a 20, and I roll again and I get the 20, I go, what were the odds of that? Well, the odds were 1 in 20, because the odds that you're going to match a number you previously rolled with the same dice, it's still 1 in 20 that I'll get the 20. It's when you when you haven't had a number to target yet. If you roll two dice at the same time, or what are the chances that I'll roll a dice and then a dice again, and they'll both be the same number? That's where you get the crazy number, and the math is actually really easy. 1 over the total number of the dice times 1 over the total number of dice. So rolling two ones in a row is 1 over 20 times 1 over 20. You have a 1 in 400 chance of rolling two ones in a row without rolling anything ahead of time. So when in our game, Chris rolled six ones in a row, let's go ahead and do the math. Yeah, I actually threw those dice away. They've been melted down and purged. Uh, that was uh, like that was like a record. It had to be. So that's... Yeah, I don't go to the casino very often. Maybe. 20 to the sixth power. You had a... Oh my gosh. That is a one in 64 million chance. Well, you need to start playing the, the lotto or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, man. He, we were playing, and like they had won the battle, and he was doing like the last attack on the guy who was like even surprised. He wouldn't even know it was coming. And he's like, one, 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 one. <laughs> I think that's a way to die. That's the only way to explain. Yeah, like I think he should have just died. That's what should have well, yeah, the, uh, the I think the the final villain just got bored and left. See? Right, right, right. <laughs> he didn't even try to mercy kill me. He was just like, really. <laughs> so, but each time it just gets literally exponentially uh, more outrageous. Rolling three ones is a one in eight thousand chance. Rolling four ones is one in one hundred and sixty thousand chance. But you can now you can you can know the answer. Just it's very 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 simple math. Even Caleb can do it. Yay! <laughs> yeah, because it's just, a it's just a bunch of series of fifty fifties. Right. Just be careful with the plane fallacy, where the idea where you say, "Well, I want to be in a plane with somebody who's already been in a plane accident," because the chances that you'll be in two plane accidents is astronomical. Yes, if they've never been in an accident, that's true. But if they have been in an accident, it's still just a one in whatever it normally is. So don't have that. That if you roll the twenty already, the chance you'll hit that twenty again is one in twenty. Unless you're me. Unless, <laughs> unless you're you're Chris Rowan. <laughs> the big takeaway while we went over all these percentages is if I don't have a D12, oh, I'll just roll two D6s. Now you know you're not going to have the same percentage. If you don't have a D12, you've got to go get a D12. Two D6s <laughs> will not work. 
we're gonna go into more numbers. So let's break this up a little bit because we didn't talk about the actual dice we use. Everyone's got their favorite set of dice and their special dice that they hand order. Not anymore, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> or they have their melted plastic in various colors. Um, I think the number one thing before anything else that comes to dice, because we all like to get our pretty dice. Caleb, you got your pointy barbed wire dice that really hurt to hold, but they look really cool. <laughs> now, um, actually, uh, Chris owns them. I gave them to him as a Christmas gift. Yep. Yes, ah. thank you. Because he rolled so many ones, I'm like, maybe this will do better for you, man. It's about it's about the whole pleasure and pain part. Right that's now. right. That's right. Yeah, you, have to, you have to get some blood on those dice, right? <laughs> maybe you get more blood on the twenty. Dice. It's a little more weighted. But I think the most important thing when it comes to dice is their visibility. Yeah, I if agree. You can, if you, someone's across the table and they roll the die, like I have this really pretty purple set of dice with gold numbering because I really like the color purple. And I never use them because people can't read them from across the table. Yeah, they, they think you're cheating, right? Oh, cheat, cheat. Yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. You got a critical head. I believe you. GM if they dice. have, like, cursive numbers, be careful of cursive numbers. My GM dice are black with white lettering, which is the clearest lettering you can have. You, a lot of people have uh, black on white. When you, if you do a PowerPoint presentation, the basic is black on white. Word, it's black on white. But if you ever watch somebody who does a slideshow, the clearest version is a black background with white lettering. So that that's my GM dice. I've got all sorts of them, and I continue to try to collect even more uh, dice. The strange number, like a D32, that's black with white lettering. But when I, as a player, I used those those uh, metal thorn dice, which are really hard to read because as a player, I can if I'm waiting a little bit before I, I figure out the answer, it's not really hurting anybody. As a GM, I've got to know those numbers right away because I'm rolling a lot. Yeah, I don't know if you guys know, but that can be such a serious issue. Like if you go to some uh, Warhammer 40,000 miniature combat tournaments, they actually give you dice that, that come as part of the package when you go to the tournament. So everybody has the same type of dice mm. uh, because you're actually compete. You're competing, right? Mm. So it's kind of like the Vegas thing. We, we got to make sure you have a certain kind of die, mm. right? Okay. I assume that's also to stop cheaters, potentially? It, it is. It is exactly what it is. Yeah, because people bring... They may not buy weighted dice, but you can find naturally weighted dice, right? You just find ones that happen to fall on that number. So however that dice got molded, they favor a 1 or they favor a 6 or whatever it is. Um, so that's their workaround. Christian works at a casino, and he got a bunch of D6s uh, from the casino that they used to craps and other games. And they drill a hole in them to be like, you know, these are done. That way you can't reuse them, regulations and all that. So he's like, uh, can I have these? This would be great. And so he got them all and he brought them to the game. Because in Pathfinder, there's a lot of reasons to use a D6. If you have like a rogue and he does his sneak attack damage to 66, you need a lot of D6s. And so we had a bunch. And while like we were in combat or something, when it wasn't my turn, I was just rolling them and recording the numbers. And I'm like, oh, Christian. We need to not use these wise. I like showed him like the stats, and I'm like, these are not very well. There's those holes in them really throw off the results of these dice. <laughs> you, there's, it's actually kind of important that you get dice that are weighted correctly. Yeah, yeah. I think if you look at casino dice, if I'm not mistaken, they the, the pivots will never go into the dice. They're just always on the surface, so that way they're not weighted incorrectly on either on any side. But yeah, once you drill a hole in it, yep, one side favors the other, yep. Now, do you either of you guys ever use any of the digital dice rollers? I do when it's a very large thing, like a Dragon Breath does 10d12 damage. It's just a whole lot easier to do 10d12, click, get the number. Um, 
a lot of the players I played with in Trailblazers or in other online ones, uh, they like to use the digital one because they maybe it was their first time playing Pathfinder. They didn't actually have real dice. Or in other cases, on Roll20, the virtual tabletop that I've used in the past, you that has an online roller there, and you use it that way, it keeps everyone honest. It shows the results to everybody, so you don't have to worry okay. about somebody cheating. And yeah, when you play with Roll20, you play with strangers sometimes, and you're, you yeah, don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does it, yeah. No, I think, I think uh, Roll20's got a... Uh, it's an animation of the dice going across the screen, too, right? I think it can be, yes. Yeah. Uh, Christian, you can speak to this. Uh, the interesting little fact that I think every computer science major learns at some point in their career, maybe in the first two years, uh, about how uh, randomness isn't really truly random on a computer. Yeah, computers. There's a lot of ways that they can mimic making truly random numbers but a computer cannot make a truly random number because at its base it's either a one or a zero and that will determine the data coming forth in the simplest way i can put it um so a lot of people have a lot of there's a lot of random number generators online they have a lot of ways um they have to make a seed that's usually the most common way they do it they make a quote-unquote seed where they'll take something that is as random as they can get it for instance i know there's some random generators that will like pull the milliseconds from your internal time clock on your computer and they'll use it as a seed to generate a long list of random numbers from that. But if you can get hold of the seed somehow, you can predict the numbers that are going to come. Right. But otherwise it does mimic true randomness, but it is not truly random. When you mention the clock, that's one of the most basic ways that you can make is the random thing is go off the person's go off the, the clock, which of course as soon as you figure that out, oh I can manipulate it now. A, a game called Final Fantasy Seven. Not even that old of a game. It's an old game, but you're not, you're not talking Atari. It did that. If you're ever interested in this stuff and this is what attracts you, just look up the video Kate Sith's Limit Break Breakdown or whatever. You'll find it. And there's a way you can rig it, and it's you can get the instant win where you kill the enemy even if it's a boss instantly, but it's random. Really, if you just have the clock at the right time, you'll get it. And there's times when you, you didn't know back then. I used to get so frustrated as a kid. Why couldn't I get it? I thought I lined up the slots just right. If your clock is on a different number than it should be, you'll never be able to, no matter even if it looks like you do with the visuals. So there's a lot of interesting ways that works like that. Another quick little game example of anyone's ever played the game Fire Emblem. Um, everything on attack or damn, or excuse me, every attack, everything like that is based on a percent. You have a percent to hit people. And in the older games, there was an abuse you can do where um, you could figure out if you, whenever you started a level, that seed was always the same. Whenever you restarted that save file, that seed was always going to be the same. So you could load that game up, and there was a little abuse you could do to figure out each number. You could figure out if each number was either above 50 or below 50. You know, write it all down. And then you can come uh, reload the save, and then you'd know what each number was, either above or below 50, because it wasn't actually random, it was pre-generated. And we talk about all this not really random. It mimics random more than well enough. More enough to encrypt things that you'll find on files at the White House. It's more than enough. It's just a funny little interesting pop-up video fact. <laughs> all right, let's conclude with something that me and Chris Rowan yelled at each other over. That's how to roll a D100. <laughs> Uh, there without is an actual hundred sided dice. <laughs> yes, without a one hundred side. Uh, a d a d ten and a d percentiles is normally how you roll a d one hundred. It's essentially two d tens. 
And when, when, when Chris and I were going over this, we're like yelling. And she's like, no, this is the way you do it. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. He's like, well, this is the way it's happened since D&D version one, Caleb. And we're going back and forth. And it was one of those things where two people argue and they're both right, but they'll just like never, never, never concede. They don't realize that they're both right. I did like this in-depth analysis and try to figure out and both ways are valid and both ways are actually legit ways to interpret uh, a 2D10s to make it a D100. So I want to go over it. I go real in-depth about this, and it's a big write-up. I'll link you to that so you can take a look at it if you want to get into the nitty-gritty of it. But essentially, there are two ways. There is the Rowan method, where the D% percent represents the tens place, and the D10 represents the ones place of the resulting value. With one exception, the double zero on the D% percent represents a value of 100 if and only if it is rolled in conjunction with the zero on the corresponding D10. This means all values are easily and quickly identifiable. However, the value of 100 is created with double zero on the D percent, representing not a value of zero as it does in every other combination, but a value of 100. So it's just one quick little inconsistency here. So one value actually has two different possible values. And there's no other dice that really work this way. And it kind of twists the way the D10 works. But guess what? Pathfinder says this is the way to do it. And this is according to, to Chris. Why don't you talk about how this is the way it's always been? Well, yeah. I mean, even going back to Gary Gygax's original version of D&D, I mean, when he was hanging out with Arneson in Blackmore, you know, before Greyhawk became fully realized, that was percentage. Don't bring up Arneson. We met that guy. <laughs> Weird guy. Really? Uh, but, they, but those were the original founders of D&D. I mean, uh, that was the way it was done. And the, those guys, you know, they were, what, military uh, war game tabletop simulation guys. So they had a, you know, that was the way their percentage dials always worked for those games. Like when they made games about Waterloo or games about the Battle of the Bulge or whatever, before they even did D&D, um, those were the dice uh, that they used uh, to try to get the percentages and stuff. And, there's, you know, there's other games out there back in the 80s. Uh, Marvel superheroes had a... A role-playing game uh, out that used percentage dial, percentage dice for everything. Yeah, everything. Right. That was your success or failure based on this big chart, and that was even the way that they used their uh, their dice to determine how did you get 100, which was critical success, and one, which was a critical failure. So it's been around that way, uh, you know, no differently for at least 40 40 years, maybe. <laughs> So when, tradition does not make right. <laughs> so when I tried to figure out how to do a D percentile without reading about it, this is the way that came to my mind. Uh, without again, I didn't get the influence of having years of of, of background. Then there is the Garofolo method. The D percent represents the tens place, and the D ten represents the ones place of the resulting value. With one exception, the zero on the D ten represents a value of ten. So essentially, you're just adding the dice together. You look at the D10, you see a 5 on the D10, you look at the D% and there's a 20 on the D%, you go 20 plus 5 is 25. So when you see a 0 on the D10 and a 20 on the D percentile, you read the D10 like you would always read it, where 0 equals 10. There's no way you can roll 0 on any other dice. So 10 plus 20 is 30. Now the tens values are all a little bit weird to read now. 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, and 100 aren't quite as quickly identifiable when you first use this method because you see a 0 plus a 10. It looks like it should be a 10, but no, that's 10 plus 10. However, in this method, the D10 acts like it always does, and there's no numbers that have two values, depending on what you roll with the corresponding dice. And while at first the 10s aren't quickly identifiable, they are eventually pretty quickly identifiable once you figure that out. I see a 0 and a 20, it's a 30. It's the next 10s up always. So here is the, the choice between the methods. If you're not worried about rules as written, do you want instant readability 
or do you want dice consistency? And this is this is the choice. The Chris Rowan method has the easily identifiable. I know when I rolled a hundred. I know when I rolled a twenty. Like that. The Garofolo method has a little bit of twenty zero. Okay, that's thirty, but it's consistent. You're reading a D10 as you've always read a D10. And I had not known that I was a whack job, that I was doing things completely <laughs> differently from everybody else. And because when I first went over this, we actually, nobody really knows this because we re-recorded the, the first episode we did. But for a while, the original first episode we did, we talked about, Chris, Christian and I, how to read a D100. And for whatever reason, we both read it this way. So I had no clue that I was a, a stranger in this land of normally reading dice. I thought I was consistent with normal beliefs because the one person I talked to about it, he was like, yeah, this, this is the way you do it. This is the way I do it. This is the way I do it. And then I talked to Chris and then we start punching each other with books and trying to kill each other and rolling ones on each other all the time because <laughs> I had no clue. And so I, I made this big in-depth thing and, and I posted it on, on the Pathfinder Reddit and on different uh, dice uh, blogs that I'm part of and Facebook groups and everyone's like you put a lot of work into like like this is stupid like it's just it's like, you know, what? that's a lot of work for like yeah you read a d10 like this that's yeah because we're okay. we're generally we're, we're lazy we don't want to th- actually do math we just want <laughs> right. to read what it says and then there's your result right, right. <laughs> Christian how did you come up with this 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 method that's inconsistent with uh history I mean, I didn't have to come up with it. That's the thing. Like, I was just like, okay, 90 plus 10. Because I never read the D10 at the zero as a te- uh, zero. So right. I was like, okay, 90 plus 10, that's 100. It's 100. There right, we go. Right. Um, and I don't think, like, either's wrong. I think we're they're both valid. The only important thing is to make sure that everyone's on the same page. Because right, you don't right. want to, like, run into an instance where someone rolls something and they're like, oh, I got this. And you're like, mm, actually, right. no, that's this. And you're like, mm-hmm. ooh. Run into your guy's situation right, with right. The, the murder and whatnot. Yeah. I, 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 would, I would even go as far as to say... When we play, it's fine that Caleb does it his way as long as we know he consistently does it his way. Right. Consistency is important. Now, because, uh, you know, I brought up the Marvel superhero game that which if you have if you get a chance and you're really bored, you should uh, look it up. It was it was a really pretty sweet game. Um, but they didn't actually have percentile dice like they were two ten siders is what you rolled. Yeah. So now imagine even further having to interpret two ten siders, two regular ten siders, one that doesn't right. say twenty on one, it says two on one. Right, right. And, and you know, and one through zero that's, on the other. That's what I use. I use two you ten know, siders. I it is just you, you basically siders. for that game you had to decide like, okay, do I you know, this is the, going to be my ten sider. Right. This is going to be my one sider. Yeah. And then if you got two zeros, well it, you know, that was a hundred. Yeah, basically right. you just you had to have that in your mindset because the I don't believe the the regular the new the percentile dice I think is actually a newer uh, not super super new like not last year but I think within the last twenty years yeah, you have, um, have guys that would cheat and say oh no this is my this is this dice this right. is this dice right, right. <laughs> and I think that was the main reason they came out with those kind of dice so that there wasn't uh, confusion anymore. Because before we used to have like a different colored die, like okay, this is gonna be my high die. Yeah, this is gonna be the right. low die yeah. type of thing. But it's uh, important to note that if you're someone that say goes to your local gaming store and plays with people there, like random people per se, you probably want to stick to the piezo method because that is yep. like the method that every is advised to use, and you will probably not cause confusion if you go in using that. The more widespread method by far. Right. Yeah. Right. There's a little a little trick that I only recently learned is when you need to do cover there's some basic percentages like if it's uh if you're completely concealed you have a 50 percent chance to miss well i don't need to roll a d100 and get 51 or above i can roll any dice that's an even number if i roll a d20 10 or below is you know the numbers that got below 50 and 
11 above or above 50. If it's a 25% chance, you know, it's the same thing. If you can break it up into quarters, if I roll the D, the D um, 20, five or below is the 20%. I used to always roll, I can't believe I rolled D100s for 50% chance things. I was an idiot, but I had a big D100 <laughs> and I wanted to use it whenever I could. We're creatures of habit. You Until Christian broke it. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I taught you the right way to do things. <laughs> Now, have you guys ever, getting to the percentages again, have you ever uh, decided whether it was going to be the high 25% or the low 25%? Wow, I'm so glad you brought that up because I was playing a game on Roll20 recently and a guy told me, high or low? I was like, what does that even mean? He goes, well, rolling a D100, high or low? I'm like, high or low what? I didn't understand (laughs) what the heck he meant. So, Chris, want to explain, what do you mean? Like, if you say, okay, I have a 25% chance of success, well, that means on a percentile dice, I can either go high, which means I roll a 75 or above, and that's a success, or I roll a, a 1 through 25 right. on the lower end. I personally always done low. The success was the lower numbers, and the failure was the higher numbers. And it's to note that most systems that do use a D100 um, right now that I can think of, Call of Cthulhu and um, the Warhammer variants like uh, Dark Heresy and Rogue Trader, they all do low success. So you, the lower the better in all those games. I personally, whenever anyone rolls for it, we can't, like, remember what, like, we will identify at the beginning of the game, like, okay, it's it's low, low success, guys, and then we just won't remember it, so we just call it out every time we roll it. Every time you roll. I've done that, my players have done that as well. How about you two? I, I'm, I'm definitely the oddball. I usually go high, so I'm, I'm way off base. Now who look who's different? That's right. <laughs> Guilty, guilty. <laughs> um, I've I've done both it, because I, I'm such a crappy die roller. Uh, apparently, uh, sometimes <laughs> I mix it up. So, like sometimes I might say, "Well, I haven't actually been successful rolling low. Let me try rolling in the high version." Yeah. You know? I still can't believe if we had tried that 64 million times, only once would it ever get six <laughs> Mega millions. Mega millions. It's amazing. <laughs> and the only thing that was good for me is I had two other witnesses. You know, so. <laughs> and now it's it's documented on the interwebs. Right. It's yep. permanent. It's there. It's in the ethernet. And you let those witnesses get away and spread word of your failures. <laughs> yeah, that was, well, that you was should have grabbed the knife and killed us. <laughs> well, I tried to, but I rolled a one. So I, they, they were able to escape. <laughs> Well, guys, thank you so much for coming on. I'm, I'm really happy you guys came. Like I said, you were the first people I thought of when I thought of miniatures and arguing people over dice. It was yeah, you guys yeah, were the first yeah. people. I really appreciate you guys coming on. Yeah, it was a great time. A lot of fun. Thanks for having us. Thank you all for listening. Class is dismissed. Pathfinder Academy is part of the Trailblazer Network. For other great Pathfinder podcasts, visit our site, tblazer.net. Want to get in touch? You can email us at tblazernetwork at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at tblazernetwork. I've been Nicholas Laborde. Thanks for listening. Hey, Jacob, you want to play some D&D tonight? I can't. Uh, I have to go make love to my wife tonight. You know, I don't even know if I love her anymore. I don't really know her. Like, what am I gonna do? Someone should tell Jacob that people change and it takes effort to stay connected with someone. But in the meantime, the fellows at Tales from the Lich always stay connected through gaming and friendship. When you can't play, listen. TalesFromTheLich.com Hey, uh, happy Valentine's Day.